Well, by now you've checked your clocks and you know we're not ending at 1230. <laughs> Nor should you expect me. It's not going to happen today. You're still going to get your steaks, men. You know, fathers. Oh, you're not getting steaks today. Should have been invited to my house. Oh, well. <laughs> Everybody knows the amazing yet true story of David and Goliath. David slew the giant with a sling and a stone. Not because of his great aim, but because he invoked the name of the God of the armies of Israel. Fewer people, however, are aware of a previous heroic exploit by a young man who scaled a cliff and single-handedly attacked a Philistine garrison, killing 20 soldiers and causing panic to spread throughout the enemy's camp. That young man was Jonathan, the son of the king. Jonathan abandoned the security of his own camp and with a lion-hearted zeal declared to his own armor-bearer in 1 Samuel chapter 14 and verse 6, come, let us cross over to the garrison of those uncircumcised. Perhaps the Lord will work for us, for the Lord is not restrained to save by many or by few. A garrison of heavily fortified and confident Philistines set up snug and secure atop a cliff was no easy obstacle to overcome. But men, men like Jonathan and David, men like that, they act in faith when others stand around and ask, but how will we get that done? Men of greater faith have always answered that question, how? By God's power. That's how. David exclaimed that very truth to Goliath and to every soldier that was standing on both sides of the valley of Elah. He said, the battle is the Lord's, and he will deliver you into my hand even said he would chop his head off and he didn't even have a sword in his hand. That's faith. That's a man of faith. I love men of faith. They excite me. You know, I love it when men believe God and they're around me. That excites my faith. Doesn't it do that for you too? Well, we at Hope Bible Church have faced an uphill battle, to say the least, against many intimidating foes and obstacles. We commenced this whole thing with a complete lack of human resources, no church backing, no one else to share the vision or the load with us. We had no example to follow about how to plant a church using expository preaching. What's that? Nobody wants that. Churches all around us were pursuing the seeker-driven model, make everything comfortable for the outsider, make them feel at home, don't talk about sin. That increased the size of their church. That works. It grows the number of a church. But does it do all that well at building disciples? It doesn't look like it. And yet for us, the battle was the Lord's. And along the way, a long way, by the way, I sound a lot louder today. Is that just me? It's coming back at me here. So I'm like, wow, this is what you guys have been enduring all these times. I'm hearing it back at me right here. So it's all right. But I'm not going to get softer. That's not going to happen either. I don't know how. Don't, don't teach an old dog new tricks, right? It's been a long way, and God brought faithful people. 
They were drawn here by the Lord. First they came and they learned. Next they began to serve. You're some of those. In some cases, these men and these women became stalwarts of faith in the cause of Christ and built themselves into the very fabric of Hope Bible Church and its ministry. Nevertheless, as is true in just about every church, the faithful were always fewer than the fickle. And the, uh, the costs that we faced in this region of the country are obviously, you know this better than any, much higher than the norm throughout the country. It slowed our ability to get established as a church. Many of our members were moved by the Lord to other parts of the country and other parts of the world. We have literally hundreds of former members that are now in other parts of the world and the country. And then there were false brethren and manipulators and slanderers who came here with their own agenda and caused problems and took their toll on our vitality. Of course, Satan brought frightening trials of sickness, roared in our faces as a lion, for he is the enemy of Christ's church. Still, the Lord sustained his servants. Still, the church advanced, not by our own power, but by the power of his grace. In the face of relentless obstacles or dangerous obstacles, believers really have three basic choices. We can give up and admit defeat, or we can fight, or fight in our own strength and lose miserably, or we can be as Jonathan and David, learn to appropriate the power of God, the tremendous power of God, and then see the Lord fight the battles for us. That's the wiser choice, don't you think? By God's patient grace, ministering through our own weaknesses, this is what we did. We relied on the strength of the Lord. He overcame our weaknesses. He overcame our stubbornness. And the battle was the Lord's and the victory is the Lord's. He gets the glory. That's why we're here today. One imperfect local body led by a perfect God and Father, witnessing answers to prayer because He's faithful, celebrating this great day in our new $5 million, 55,000 square foot church facility, as they say, the size of Noah's Ark, all dedicated to the glory of God in Christ. And not just in a new permanent facility, because a facility was never really the goal, but worshiping and witnessing and discipling other people, all of that has to be done by the power of God. The men's ministry has a memory verse about God's power, Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10. I'm kind of hoping many of you guys remember it, because if you know it, please join in with me and say it nice and loudly. Ephesians 6.10, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. I think I heard a lot of men there. But how do you do that? How do you be strong in the Lord? If you tell someone to pray to the Lord, they understand that. They tell someone to be strong, they know how to do that. How do you be strong in the Lord? What's involved in appropriating the power of God? Paul wrote about God's power early in the same letter, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 through 23, and that is the message that we will hear today about God's power. Ephesians chapter 1, if you would turn there, verses 19 through 23, I'm going to start reading at 18 so you can see that this is a prayer that he has, Ephesians 1, 19 to 23. Starting with verse 18, Paul writes, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened 
so that you will know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints. And now verse 19, and what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of His might, which He brought about in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. And God put all things in subjection under His feet and gave Him as head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of of him who fills all in all. There's a lot in there, isn't there? But these words declare unmistakably that God is at work in the church with the same power he exerted in the life of Jesus Christ. That's shocking. You might not even believe it, and I believe that's true. How could God be exerting the same power in the church that he exerted in the life of Jesus? But clearly, that is the meaning of the words here. It's the very thing that Paul was praying the believers would understand along with his first two petitions there in verses 17 and 18. So today, we're going to consider that. We're going to consider the power of God and how it is unleashed. We're going to look at the power of God through two avenues, through through, uh, the power of God displayed in Christ and then the power of God operative in the church. God's power displayed in the person of Jesus Christ and then God's power operative inside his own church. Let's look first at the the power of God in Christ. Look back at verse 19 again. Focus on that. And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? This power then is in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he, that is God, raised Christ from the dead. Let's pause there. In this book of Ephesians, Paul is actually laying out what the unique role and power and privileges of the church of Jesus Christ really is. He talks about predestination of the church. He talks about redemption and reconciliation, spiritual giftedness that's given to the church, empowerment that is given to the church of Jesus. In fact, the book of Ephesians is the closest thing we have in all of the New Testament to what we would call an ecclesiology, a systematic study of what the church is and what the church is supposed to be doing. Any local church can look at this and read this and figure out, are we doing the right things? Are we emphasizing the right things just by the book of Ephesians because it really emphasizes that. In this opening chapter, chapter 1, Paul is laying out all the incredible blessings that the church has in Jesus Christ. In fact, if you look all the way back to verse 3, it says that God has, it says, blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with what? With every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just the fact that we're in Christ, we've been blessed beyond anything that we can imagine. That's what he's talking about in chapter 1. And then he comes to this section in verse 19, and he says, I want you to also understand the power of God. I want you to understand, church, there's a power of God that is operating on your behalf. Paul writes that in verse 19. He says, this kind of power, look at the words there, they're they're not hyperbole, they're meant to be this way. The power is surpassing greatness. Now, greatness is great, but this is surpassing greatness. That term surpassing means exceeding. 
And the greatness is the term megathon. You could hear an English word in there. This is mega greatness, right? But it's beyond that. That's God's power. Whatever vastness you might think of in your own mind when you think of God's power, however you try to envision it, God's power exceeds that. You have too small an understanding of God's power. Unfortunately, we can't get our minds to think great enough when it comes to the power of God. When we try to mentally encompass God's power, honestly, we're engaging in a futile endeavor. God's power goes beyond anything that we can ever imagine. The power of of dynamite, or better yet, the power of a nuclear explosion. That's very impressive, is it not? But it can be measured. It can be understood. It can be evaluated by scientists. The tremendous force of a volcano blowing off the top of a mountain, that's awesome, but it has its limits. Even the boundless energy of the sun in the sky, as mind-boggling as that is, they say the core of the sun reaches 27 million degrees Fahrenheit. I don't even understand that. But it can still be calculated. Someone's doing the calculation. I don't think they went in there, by the way, you know, with a thermometer to figure out how hot it is. But someone's measuring that. God's power goes beyond all of that. It is surpassingly great. It exceeds measurement. Now, how can anyone explain or define the power of God then? Well, notice that Paul tries. He continues in verse 20 to talk about three different Greek terms that are used there to try to define the power of God. Did you see all three of those terms there? He says, this power of God that is working to aid the church is in accordance with, and then it says, the working of the strength of His might. The working is the word energeo. We get our word energy from that. This word does not mean latent energy. Actually, it means the exercising of power. It's operative power, energizing, thus the translation working. The second term, strength, is kratos in Greek. That noun also means working, but it it has another kind of way of explaining it. It means working in an effective way to achieve a goal. The energy doesn't just blow something up. It actually works towards something and accomplishes a goal. It's power as force and mastery. It actually conquers. And then the third word there, iscus, translated might or translated strength, this word means latent force that would uh, not yet is, is not yet exerted, but it could be exerted. You know, it's, it's kind of passive power that's poised and ready to be used, like an athlete that's about to start running a race or to fight a fight. It's not yet exerted, but it can be. There's a lot that's there. It's, it's latent power, iscus. You put all three of those words together, and Paul wanted us to do that, and the phrase kind of carries the sense of this, the active carrying out of forceful might. It could be translated differently. We could translate it the energizing of overwhelming power or the working of unstoppable strength. Paul was purposefully heaping up these words because he was praying that our our minds would be enlightened to the greatness of God's power at work. He wants to show the the various facets of God's power and how you, you can never fathom the depths of that kind of power. Yet Paul, even by using those terms, he's not satisfied with that. So then he goes to an illustration, and his illustration is the life of Jesus Christ, what God did in the life of Jesus Christ, who is God in human flesh, let's remember, but he's also a human. He's also a man. Three things. 
are mentioned that God did to demonstrate His power in the life of Jesus. Three things in His life. First, God's power raised Jesus Christ from the dead. That's verse 20. Look at it. It says, He, God, brought about this power, the working of the power in Christ when God did what? Raised Him from the dead. Raised Him from the dead. If we were standing outside the tomb that first Easter morn, we would have seen some unbelievable display of divine voltage, life-giving voltage that went into that tomb and caused Jesus Christ to be raised from the dead. That energy caused the curse of death actually upon the entire human race to be reversed and rendered powerless. One we might call lightning, lightning bolt of divine life-giving energy blew away a whole worldwide mortuary. That's what we live in. We live in a worldwide mortuary. No one could break the power of death, but God did in one simple act. He broke the power of death. That's power. That's real power. Neither man nor any other created power in the universe can bring a person back to life after death. All modern medicine, all of their laboratories, all the technology, computer-assisted this and that, their calculations, they can't even bring back one ant for a millisecond from death. God's resources are infinitely more vast. Jesus' resurrection was no CPR. It was no resuscitation. It was a dramatic display of divine power to raise him to an altogether new and powerful existence. God refused to let his Holy One, the Christ, see corruption, Psalm 16 Verse 10. Again, I say, that's real power. But there's more. The second mighty act is God's power seated Jesus at his right hand. Again, look at the last part of verse 20. And seated him. Who's that? Jesus. That's a human being. Seated Jesus at his right hand in the heavenly places, the spiritual realms. Paul mentioned the resurrection first because that happened chronologically first, but most of the attention here goes to God's display of power in raising Jesus to the right hand of himself, of the Father. You know when that happened. We already studied that in Acts. Forty days after the resurrection, Jesus was taken up to be with God. He was seated at the right hand of God. God took a beaten up, bloody, cold, lifeless corpse of a poor man who was wrapped in burial spices and cloth, buried in a dark sepulcher in some insignificant land, and then raised that person to the highest position of authority in the universe. All the defenders of the universe, this is the real defender. He's the real sovereign of the universe. That's the kind of power that Paul is trying to get us to pray to understand. The right hand right hand of God. You know, the right hand of a king was a special place. If you got to sit at the right hand of a king, you had a lot of authority. Well, there's no greater king than God. There's no greater throne than his. When he tells Jesus, sit at my right hand, there's no place higher anywhere. There's no corner of the universe. There's no galaxy anywhere Christ does not rule over. He's at the right hand of omnipotent, our Jesus, our blessed Jesus, right? And that's wonderful. That gives us that gives us confidence. It even was in the Psalms. Remember Psalm 110, verse 1, the Lord said to my Lord, sit where? At my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Jesus mentioned this in his trial with Caiaphas, that snake of a high priest. This is in Matthew 26. And Caiaphas, with the Sanhedrin behind him, thinking he had all this authority and power, he said, I adjure you, I put you under oath. 
by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And Jesus said, you have said it yourself. That means yes, by the way. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Power. That's what he has. Remember what he told his disciples? Go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations. Why? Because all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's real power. Even says this here in verse 21. Notice the seat of Christ's power. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come. And then verse 22, if you didn't understand what that meant, verse 22 kind of nails it. He put all things in subjection under his feet. They're all under his feet. He's in, in, in control over all things. You know, when you and I think about our world, the world in which we live in and our universe, ever since we were kids, we learned about authority. Usually had to do with spankings, you know. But we learned about authority. You don't listen to mom and dad. It hurts. <laughs> you know, it hurts. Then you go to you go to school and you can't, you know, throw spitballs at the wall. You can't do all the things you want to do and because uh, the teacher says no and there's authority. And, and, and then there's this guy down there in that, that very scary office and he's the principal and he's over the teacher and he has authority. He has greater authority. He's really neat. You go off to camp and you think, oh, we're going to play in the woods and there's counselors. They have authority, you know. And then there's the camp director and he tells everybody what to do at the camp. Authority. You grow up, you go to college, and there's this guy called the university president, and he controls your life. You go into business, and you have a job, and then there's a boss or a CEO, and you feel like, wow, I just got to listen to this guy. In the army, the captain commands the sergeant, the major commands the captain, but the general gets to command everybody. Higher than all of these are the governors, then the presidents, and in some places, the kings with all authority in their land, right? They execute the law in their land. But we haven't gone very high yet because if that's all you've been educated and you've been educated in earthbound understanding of this universe, there are authorities higher than that, higher than kings, higher than presidents. Later in this book, Paul would remind everyone our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It is against the rulers. It is against the powers. It is against the world forces of this darkness. It is against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. That's what it's against. How do you fight that? Not with your dinky little power. Not getting mad at this president or this Congress. It's nothing to do with that. There are forces above that. Open up the mind to understand what we're facing. Even higher than all earthly authorities are angels and demonic powers whose domains are real. Paul talks about the church's real battle. Put on the full armor of God. You're going to fight that. And then over them is the archangel Michael. And over the bad angels is Satan himself. Satan, whom it says in 1 John 5, 19, the whole world, the world system that is, lies in the power of the evil one, as if he put his paws right on it and said, this is mine. And that, by the way, is in the present tense. That still is true of him. But according to this holy text, Jesus has the highest rank of all the supreme badge of power and authority. He has sovereign rule. He is far above all other powers and authorities. Our Jesus, guys, our Jesus, the Jesus we serve, Jesus we just prayed to, 
Jesus, we just worship that Hope Bible Church. He's the head of the church and we get to talk to him and he has all power and authority. Isn't that amazing? Do you believe that? Doctrinally, yes. Do you believe that in a way that it influences the way you think about the possibilities for a small local church? What did Jonathan say? The Lord is not constrained to save by many or by few. Why? Because the battle is the Lord's. He doesn't need anybody. He can just wipe us out without. One time in the Old Testament, he sent an angel down and wiped out 180,000 people. He doesn't need any of us. One person is all he needs. We'll believe him. It doesn't matter how big we are. It doesn't matter how small we are. Jesus is stronger than all. Some people ask, is Jesus stronger than Satan? Well, there you got your answer already. Even Revelation 19, 16, he's got on his robe and on his thigh a name, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Well, just in case someone had a certain name they thought one day might rival Jesus or kind of be up there in a pantheon with Jesus, let's just celebrate them all, you know. Let's just put them all up there. Let's tolerate them all. Let's all just get along. Just put Jesus in a long line of different people, whether it is maybe the name Moroni from the Mormon church or the Muslims that venerate Muhammad or Buddha or the Catholics Mary, not the biblical Mary. Look what Paul adds in verse 21. And every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. You got a name out there, he's greater. I don't care who you are, where you came from. I don't care what you dig up and find. Jesus is better. He's better. You got it? Any questions? Absolute, total, universal supremacy, our Jesus. Therefore also God highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and that every tongue confess Jesus Christ is what? Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Verse 22 is just a punctuation mark on that. God put all things in subjection under Jesus' feet. But there's even more. There's a third. The third mighty act of God's power in the life of Jesus is that he established Jesus Christ as the head of the church. Now, why would anyone want any different head than Jesus? God gave the church a head. The head is Jesus. He has all power. Why would we want another head? I don't understand that. But this is where it connects back to us, guys. God gave him, Christ, as head over all things, look at your preposition carefully there, to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The third mighty act of God simply flows from the second. Since God gave Christ the name above all names, seated him at the right hand of the Father, certainly then he is head over all things, including he is head over the church. The church is the unique body of Christ, and Jesus is the life-giving, authoritative head of the church. He sends his life-giving power and impulses down into his own body. He is intimately connected with his own body. He's never going to be severed from his own body. But that doesn't even express really what Paul wrote there. Look at it again. It's not the fullness of what Paul means here in verses 22 and 23. Because notice at the end of 22, it says, God gave Jesus as head over all things to the church. What? 
Yes, that's what he means. The headship of Jesus Christ in the heavens with all that authority is a gift to who? The church, to us. It is our tremendous privilege to be connected to a head who is higher than all other heads and who's over all other authorities. We're not all that weak, guys. We're connected to one who's extremely powerful. The church is connected to the heavens and to all the resources of the heavens. We, the body of Christ on earth, are nurtured and led and empowered from on high. In fact, Christ is so intimately connected with us. It says Christ fills his body with his very presence. This building, as beautiful as it is, is not the temple of God. These people are the temple of God. He lives inside of you and fills you and never departs from you. We are the body of Christ. He fills us. He completes us. Listen, he empowers us. And by the way, we fill him up. What does that mean? We don't leave him as a head without a body. We complement him the way a wife does a husband. Christ actually lives and operates in the world today through churches like us. Do you see now why Paul was praying to believers that you and I would understand with the eyes of our heart, way back in verse 17, that we would understand in the eyes of our heart the power that is at, working toward us. And that's what we're going to look at here now is God's power operative inside the church of Jesus Christ. That's the second thing we want to look at. Here's where I want to challenge you. And I want you to think about this because it's right here in God's word. At the end of verse 23, Paul is really bringing us back to his main point and to the purpose of his prayer. Paul so thoroughly described the power of God at work in Jesus, not just to boast about Jesus, but so that we would understand that same immeasurable power that worked in his life is operative inside of his church. Go back to verse 19 for a moment. Paul writes there that the surpassing greatness of God's power works, and here are these prepositions again, towards us who believe. That little prepositional phrase, toward us, towards us, it's important. If you have different English translations, you might have towards us, you might have for us, you might have in us who believe. All of these are possible translations because the meaning is that God's power and all of its resources are working toward our benefit. It's amazing. Therefore, there's something very practical here, something very beneficial in these words if we can grasp them. Paul was praying that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened to understand this because he knew if we got this, if we could believe this, if we understood this, it would be life-altering truth. We needed to grasp it. If we were going to do the work of God, if we were going to think about plans for the future, we needed to grasp it. There is a certain guarantee that God will bring through to completion what he has started inside of us. Put that another way. No one can stop God from working in and through his church. Nobody. What does God's power do in the church? Well, in chapter 2 and verse 1, if you glance forward to that, Paul is describing how we were dead in our trespasses and sins, and God's power saved us from that. It says we were so dead in our trespasses and sins, but God had mercy from us and he, he made us alive in Christ and then he seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. That's in some mystical connection. 
That's one power exerted. If you keep going on in chapter 2, you'll read about how God reconciled the Jewish world and the Gentile world, put them in one body. The church broke down the barrier, the dividing wall. He made them unified, and that was also God's power at work in the church. He turned us into a holy temple. He put the Holy Spirit inside of us so that we would be pleasing to him and we would offer up sacrifices of thanksgiving and praise. You move right on into chapter 3. He never stops talking about the power of God in the church. He hints at in chapter 3 that angels and demons are watching what's going on in the church and they're they're dumbfounded by the things that they learn in the church. God shows his many-sided wisdom of things going on inside of the church and they're learning and growing these creatures that he made. It says in chapter 3 that God strengthens each individual believer in his inner man. Many of you are weak on the outside. I know how you feel, trust me. You're weak in your your body, but your inner person is being empowered by the Spirit of God. There's so much that can be done spiritually speaking, not because of your body, but because of the strength of your soul inside of you. And he does that. In chapter 4, he talks about how Christ ascended into heaven and he brought gifts back down to men. So he equipped the church with spiritual giftedness and with love and poured out his love on them. So we, we walk in newness of life. That's a power nobody out there has. In chapter 5, it says we walk in God's wisdom and we walk in God's light. We are the bride of Christ and we're assisted by the fullness of God's spirit. If you go to chapter 6, it talks about how we're equipped with spiritual armor to fight against wicked spiritual foes. God works with power in his church. God works with power in the life of every single believer. God works with power in your life. You must not doubt that. He saved you. He strengthens you. He guides you. He gifted you. He equipped you. He has blessed you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. He's using you now. He'll use you more if you let him. He has promised to bring you and your body all the way to glory. No matter how strong the lure of the world, no matter how great the power of Satan, no matter how persistent your stubborn flesh and the selfishness that you feel, God, by the same power that put Christ high above in the heavens, will fulfill his purposes in our lives and in this church. Count on it. Bank on that, Hope Bible Church. To doubt that is not to doubt yourself. The real sin of it is you doubt God at work in you. I love talking about Moses because he looked like he had a poor self-esteem. And he said to the Lord, Lord, you've got to send someone else. I can't speak too well. Why didn't God just say, oh, Moses, let's boost you up a little. Let's get you a little more self-esteem. He got angry at Moses. He said, who do you think is going to be with your mouth? I'll be with your mouth. Your doubt and your hesitation is not a low view of yourself. It's a low view of God. You're holding back because you think you can't do is not humility. That is a lack of faith in what God can do. You need to understand that. Listen to these words from chapter 3 and verse 16 in Ephesians, that God would grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. How can I have power in the inner man? You already have it. You have the Holy Spirit. It's not your power. Listen to chapter 3 and verse 20. God is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works, and here it is, within us. 
chapter 6 and verse 13. Take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day, having done everything to stand firm. In terms of ministry, when he wrote the letter of Colossians in chapter 1 and verse 29, Paul said, for this purpose I also labor, some of you are laboring for God, I also labor, striving according to God's power, which mightily works inside of me. Listen, living and serving and working by the power of God was not an abstract theory for the Apostle Paul. It was his daily experience, and it should be ours as well. In Philippians 2.13, Paul wrote, For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. There are a few Christians that I have met who seem to understand the power of God that can be operative in their lives. I think many just fall short. They just look left and they look right and they see what other people are doing and they won't believe God for more. They don't see what God could accomplish through them. Their vision is very small. Listen, I'll say it again. When you hold back because you are uncertain, your doubt is not a doubt of yourselves. Your doubt is a doubt of the Lord's power. Think about those men standing on the other side with David, not rushing down to challenge Goliath. Each one of them could have said, well, you're a better fighter. You're more experienced. You're big. You're about the biggest we got. You're six foot ten. You go fight them. And they all would have been looking at their own resources, and that's why they stood on the other side. Listen to a lot of people. When David went down into that valley, he looked like an idiot. He looked like a fool. This boy is running down there. Goliath got to look at him. He must have had problems with his eyes or something like that, you know. He looked at him and said, am I a dog that you come with sticks? And David said, I didn't come with sticks. I came in the name of the Lord. He believed in the power of God. It wasn't about David's skill. You see all these movies like, well, he had skill, you know. No, it wasn't about his skill. It was about the name of the Lord. It's the same with us. The power isn't diminished. If anything, it's accentuated, right? Here we are in this new facility on Father's Day. The promise for the future is all in our hearts right now what will happen in these very halls and in these rooms. We have older men here, older men in the faith. We have middle-aged men here who are feeling not as young as they used to, but a little wiser. We have young men here with a lot of strength. We have, I think, over 120 men in this church. My brain works a little bit differently than most people's, I have to admit. On a day like today, Rather than seeing a finished building, I see an unfinished task. And I see a lot of men who haven't reached their potential for what God can do in them. My prayer is that you will understand, whether you're a father or not, as a man, as you stand there and lead whatever it is you lead, that you understand God wants to do more through your life. He wants to change you. He wants to humble you more than you've been humbled before. And after he humbles you, he wants to build up your confidence, not in yourself, not in your education, not in your past experiences, not in the fact that you did this business or that business, but your confidence in the Lord God. He wants that confidence in you to grow. You have faith in him. You need more faith in him. You'll get that through humility. You'll increase in faith in Christ. And then the last thing you need, fellas, is you need to be obedient to God. When he says, Give the gospel, give the gospel. When he says, teach your family, teach your family. When he says, shut off the lusts, shut off the lusts. 
If you're obedient to God and you don't quench the Spirit of God and you don't grieve the Spirit of God, the power of God is already there to be active in your life. And this church for the future needs you. Young men, listen to me. Quit being lazy. Quit playing your games. Quit wasting your life. Stand up. Learn the Word of God. Be trained. Get baptized. Get into the ministry. Don't hold back. God wants to use you. There is no such thing as a man of God on his own. The power in any man that you see who's doing something for God, the power that you see anybody in church history that God worked through them, it was not their own power. It was the power of God. And it's there for you, and you have to believe that. It's true for us in this generation as it was in any generation. God has not changed. The task has not changed. Your weaknesses don't matter to God. You remember what the Apostle Paul said, most gladly, therefore, I will boast about my weaknesses that the power of God may be seen in me. That's after Christ said to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Someone came to me a couple of months ago and said, tried to explain the thoughts going on in their mind all the doubts this person had about themselves. And this person was thinking about doing a ministry but felt very inadequate. And I sat there, I listened better than I usually listen. I listened to everything that this person said, going through all their thoughts and all their weaknesses and everything like that. And then at the end, of course, they're waiting for a reaction, you know. What do you think? And I said, good. I'm glad you doubt yourself. I'm glad you feel inadequate. I feel inadequate every single day of my life. Who can pick up the Word of God and talk the words of God to souls that are destined to eternity? I can't do that. I have no power to do that. I'm glad that you are not looking at yourself and saying that you think you're adequate to enter into a teaching ministry because you're not. And any man that thinks they can come into a pulpit or classroom and teach God's Word and they're going to do just fine at it, they probably shouldn't be doing it. So quit using your, your thoughts of inadequacy as an excuse to hold back the power of God. And when you go home, get on your knees before the Lord and say, here I am. Use me. I'm so weak. I have a family to lead. I have people to witness to. I have a spiritual giftness to rise up and use. Oh, Lord God, I need your power. Father, bless these people with the answer to Paul's prayer. Help them to see, their eyes of their heart to see your power, what you can do through the men and women of this church in the future, in this building or in some other place, if they would offer themselves to you in a greater way than ever they have before. Father, I pray it for the glory of Jesus and for the display of your power through the church. In Christ's name, amen.